Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and receive weekly grief guidance from me, monthly group grief support calls, and the first look at upcoming books, online courses, and projects, become a patron now at patreon.com slash Just $3 a month gets you access to everything there is to see on Patreon, plus connection to a beautiful group of grievers just like you. Unlock grief support now for $3 a month and support this show at patreon.com slash Shelby Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Jen Hardy, a therapist famous for her intuitive insights on self-care, boundaries, grief, and rest on Instagram. We'll cover emotional labor in the midst of COVID-19, how to shop for a therapist as a grieving person, and why you might want to consider swapping the critical voice in your head for someone you know and love. I'm Shelby Forsythia an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to create a world where grief is welcomed, normalized, and even embraced. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Jen Hardy is a licensed psychologist who has a private practice in Maryville, Tennessee. She graduated with a PhD in counseling psychology from Penn State University in 2010. While there, she received specialized training in psychodynamic therapy, attachment therapy, and career-related issues. She also writes on Instagram about relationships, career issues, resilience, self-compassion, and whatever else is on her mind. Jen, I'm really delighted to have you here on Coming Back because you are uh, an Instagram therapist. You're a, a therapist therapist, um, but also kind of an Insta-famous uh, therapist, which I feel like now is where a lot of people are getting their therapy or getting their mental health advice, encouragement. A lot of words uh, can be put into that. Um, yeah. But the post I found for you was, you are allowed to grieve what you have lost, even if their loss is bigger than your own. And this speaks to how it's almost impossible to truly compare griefs. So your grief matters even when the world is grieving. Mm -hmm. And just this spirit of you're allowed to have your feelings even if it feels like your feelings are dwarfed by everyone else's feelings. Um, So I'm really glad to welcome you to the show. And I know this is a little um, unconventional in that you didn't come to therapy with a lost story. But tell us a bit about why you do what you do. Sure. And then we'll need to come back to the story behind that post because yeah. I've never shared that story and it, it's fitting. Um, so why did I become a therapist? Uh, I've always been a very curious person. I come from a family of curious people. And so we've just always been people watchers, observers. My mom taught at a residential therapeutic school for children who were in uh, state's custody. And that definitely influenced the way that I walked through the world because she would always be encouraging uh, compassion, curiosity over criticism, 
trying to understand somebody's world from their own perspective instead of your own. And I realized, you know, she was trying to help us as we were interacting with these kids who were quite different from us and and traumatized. Uh, But it shapes the way that I just walk through the world and look at the world. And so I fell in love with psychology in my high school psychology class. And I thought, this is fantastic. Now, I started as a math major in college and quickly realized that math and I don't get along. Um, And then said, why don't I just go ahead and go with my backup plan, which was psychology. And I've just loved it ever since. Yeah. And um, before we get to the story about what inspired this grief post, I literally... um, kind of had this conversation with myself in my head of, oh, it's so interesting that you were taught or brought up to be curious. So you were raised by a curious person, therefore you were a curious person. And something that um, I see sometimes in clients and especially in grief is I'm afraid to be curious about myself for fear Mm -hmm. of what I will find. So I wonder how you walk people towards feeling comfortable with curiosity, especially about themselves and their thoughts and their emotions. Yeah, I just, there's a couple different elements to it. One of this is just slowing down the initial judgment. And just as we slow down and leave a little space, getting comfortable with not knowing the answer, right? So we don't have to default to a judgment. We can maybe sit with, I'm not sure what's happening here. Maybe I just observe, right? I think it's also just kind of my nature to be pretty curious. Um, I know that it helped being raised by a parent who knew the difficult stories that these children were bringing with them to this school, this therapeutic environment, right? So she really could own it wholeheartedly that we need to be coming from a place of compassion. And so I think just watching that modeling was powerful. For me, the other component of the curiosity is uh, I've always been intuitively focused. I've always just listened to my gut sense. That's always been something I knew I could rely on even when I couldn't, when there was uncertainty in the world. It always seemed like my gut was onto something. And so in this work of curiosity, I just really encourage people to take a chance on their intuitive voice and see, what if you listen to it this time? Let's see what happens. And a lot of times their intuitive voice it helps them out, right? It, it it guides them forward. It doesn't hold them back. It tends to be right. And then they get the, the courage to listen to it some more. Yeah. Because I think so much, um, especially in Westernized society that glorifies productivity, making money, kind of mm-hmm. the hustle culture, um, mm-hmm. is uh, stifling to intuition. So it's like, no, don't tune into that. These are your real markers of success. Or no, don't tune into that. This is actually the safest place for you. Or no, don't tune into that. This is where you actually belong. Um, And so to relearn uh, Mm -hmm. how to tune into intuition is a really vital skill. And I have my own therapists to thank for that. Yeah, we definitely live in a hurry up world. And, Mm -hmm. you know, In full honesty, you don't get to a PhD without at some point buying into hurry up mentality, perfectionistic mentality, right? I mean, like I own that. And I had a period of time where I was living in that world, especially in grad school, where I was like, I, I don't like this. This doesn't feel good for me. And how do I get myself through this 
really as quickly as I could so that I didn't have to live in this kind of world anymore because it was, yeah, it was lots of ignoring how tired you were or ignoring, ignoring needs, right. So that you could stay productive. Yeah, absolutely. And this, uh, we're recording in the age of COVID. I imagine this uh-huh. age will be going on for quite a while. Um, and the call for rest feels enormously loud right now. And it's enormously important. If your body is experiencing stress because of uncertainty and fear and um, trauma, you're wearing your body out faster. Your body needs, is has a higher demand for rest and recovery when it is under a lot of stress. And that is hanging in the background. COVID is hanging in the background, or for some people, quite in the foreground, depending on the numbers in their area. And then, of course, we have, as a country, we're having to reconcile a really dark history of racism, discrimination, oppression, um, systemic issues that have been not dealt with for too long. And so there is another major stress as people navigate, oh, I didn't know that they believed that thing that I really disagree with. And what does this mean for my friendship with them? And what are things from my past that maybe I don't feel good about that I have to work on or grieve the loss of what I thought was my life before? And now I'm understanding very differently. Um, 2020 has been a year. Eyeballs are huge. (laughs) I know people can't see me um, through the recording, but eyeballs bugging right out of my head because yes, it has been absolutely enormous. And I literally just wrote down, um, we often underestimate the weight of emotional labor. So in the midst of COVID, in the midst of Black Lives Matter, in the midst of even just like handling our everyday lives or, or work changes or financial changes or even having to move or be dislocated as a result of this. It's like a lot of this doesn't involve an intense amount of physical activity. And so there's almost this urge to berate ourselves of why are you so tired? It doesn't make any sense. And then to go back and catalog your day, you're literally doing every single task while processing some kind of grief. And that in and of itself adds some kind of weight to the day to day. Yeah, it's like we're being picked up and dropped down in an entirely different country and different culture, and we don't speak the language, and we are trying to navigate what this new world looks like, but no one's told us the rules. People are trying to figure it out, right? It just feels very chaotic and unpredictable. And humans, we are driven to protect ourselves. One of the ways we do this is we look for things around safety Mm -hmm. and trust, and these are so core and they're being disrupted. Do I trust that that person standing behind me in line at the grocery store, do I trust them to have taken good precautions? Do they have COVID-19? Right? There's just a lot more hypervigilance that's required right now. And it's really shaking people's senses of trust. Yes. Yeah. And if you um, kind of stratify this out into an illustration of like, we've been standing guard at the guard tower for three, four, five months straight now with no rest, lots of coffee, no rest. (laughs) The guard tower still feels safer, too safe. It it feels like we're us standing, we're like one of the sentinels out wandering outside the fence, right? Yeah. And and there is, there's not the safety 
especially, I mean, maybe we feel that safety when we're at home. I know initially with clients, I'd have to say, but remember, you are safe inside of your home because people were not feeling safe at all ever. And so they're like, I'm washing my hands 20 times a day. Like, have you left your house? Well, no. Right. And, and we have, we've, we've come a long way, right? Cause the people can look back now and say, well, the way that I was handling things in March is different than how I'm handling them now in July. And I am feeling a little more um, accustomed and acculturated to this new way of living than I was then, but it's still hard. Yeah. And, um, and learning things, having more information about a situation doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. make it easier. Um, mm-hmm. but we can feel more equipped. Yeah. We, we get some sense of safety back because we know more of the rules on how to stay protected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A smidgen, <laughs> a tablespoon mm-hmm. of safety. <laughs> Yeah. Is what gets returned to us. Yes. Because initially you had questions of, okay, so if I go through a drive through, does that mean I'm going to catch something? Mm-hmm. And now we, we have enough information to say that seems really unlikely, especially if you're both wearing masks. It's really a safe experience. Initially, we had no idea, right? And so then you'd hear people say, well, you better err on the side of caution and just not. And now we know more. Um, she gives us a little breathing room too, to not have to be quite so isolated. Right. And not so afraid. Exactly. Not so afraid. I want to um, circle back to this grief post from, mm-hmm. uh, I believe it was April 2nd on your Instagram page. If you are allowed to grieve what you have lost, even if their loss is bigger than your own. Yeah. So let me tell you the story. So, you know, you said I'm an Instagram therapist. I'm like, well, I'm, an, I'm not your therapist. I'm an, <laughs> a therapist who is on Instagram. So I will offer that caveat. But, uh, you know, as a therapist, we're observers. And by being on there and being connected to people and you watch what people are sharing and people's commentary, and you too feel like you get more of the pulse of what is happening nationally, right? And I remember high school seniors being so sad about graduation plans being canceled and their proms being canceled and what they thought was going to be their senior year just done, right? And then people saying things like, come on, it's just graduation. I thought, man, that's really a sucky way to react. It's so just not healthy to say, oh, come on, get over it. It's not a big deal. I'm like, yeah, it is a big deal. I think they get to decide how big of a deal it is. Does that mean we all go and have graduations? No, we have to accept what is the decisions that school administrators make and health professionals make around safety. But uh, that is still their loss, and we don't get to decide how big that is. Yeah, I don't know if you remember seeing those memes and posts. I mean, they were all over, and I just, ugh, I get sick of it. And I'll say, you know what? I'm writing this post up because let's get our grounding again on um, healthier ways to, to think about this stuff. It reminds me very much of a dear friend I had who had had several losses in her life, grandparents, um, a dear friend, an ex, but the loss that impacted her life the most was the death of her cat. Oh, and yeah. yeah, and many of her her friends and family were like, "Why are you so upset? It's just a cat." 
as opposed to you've had all these other um, familial losses or relationship losses or things like that, that heavy air quotes should rank higher or heavier than that. And she's like, the thing that makes me cry still, the thing I'm still really attached to is the death of my cat. And so it's like, I almost have this energy of how dare you when somebody tries to rank losses. I'm like, who are you? What what qualifies you to, to rank the scale or the severity of my Uh losses? And I think there's such that narrative that I've watched um, therapists and grief coaches who write about grief. I've watched them have to help moderate comment feeds of posts because people will say, don't compare loss. The loss of my pet is really significant. And they'd say, but don't equate that with the loss of my parent or my kid, right? And I think what part of this is there is this narrative that we rank losses. Mm -hmm. And so then when people come in with that expectation and they see somebody talking about the death of a pet, they're saying, how dare you demote my loss and say it's not as intense as I know that it is, right? So the, the person's account that I'm thinking of, she did a really excellent job of saying, whoa, whoa, wait, let's slow down. Let's get some ground rules reestablished here. Let's stop comparing and we can compare both ways. We're not all just the same. We can connect and still have different experiences. Yeah. Honor the universal experience of grief without needing to have had the same loss to get Mm it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I love um, that all of your posts are so different in terms of their themes. I was just looking right now, there's ones on boundaries. There's ones about um, be a person that you can trust. There's ones about taking time for rest, even though you don't need Mm -hmm. to earn it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Again, going back to our productivity society, and they all seem to have their roots in how can you better honor yourself as a human being? Yeah. I asked people one time, I, I put out a question and said, if you were to talk about the types of posts that you most appreciate for me as I think about posts I should write in the future. And and somebody worded it really well. And she's said that she really appreciates when I name the experiences that we all have, but that we maybe um, have never put words to. Right. And, and just little observations that that tends to be really where my posts come from is they're just my own personal observations about life as I walk through it. And it might be things that I've picked up from clients or I've watched on TV or conversations with friends or my own talking to myself and talking myself through things. And I don't ever um, typically share the source of the story unless Mm -hmm. it's me. Um, and I am very careful in, especially around clients, I, I tried to not in any way write about a client experience, but sometimes clients make me think of some general themes around, especially like hustle culture, perfectionism, compassionate living. And I'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a truth that needs to be shared. Yes. And every now and then I almost... I like look at the ceiling and laugh because I'm like, there's gotta be something in the water because three or four of my clients mm-hmm. all in a row on the same week will be talking yeah. about the same exact thing. And like, why are we all on this right now? Why do we need to hear this? Mm-hmm. And that's where a bit of my work comes from as well Is like, what themes are we landing on and sticking to? Um, 
and that does that. seem to happen. And I've talked with some of my therapist friends who are on Instagram, and there is definitely this feeling of like watching and being curious, just observing and saying, okay, what is the message that needs to be said right now that's happening amidst um, national news, but also people's reposts or comments? And yeah, I agree. There does seem to be this collective collective experience that we tap into different elements of. Yeah. And I kind of want to segue into that, into your connections with other therapists on Instagram or what it's <laughs> like to be um, a mental health practitioner in a place where you are so accessible. It seems mm-hmm. like um, you would have to put up a lot of boundaries in order to not have people spilling out their guts to you through direct message, um, asking for advice in the comments, um, trying to fight you <laughs> on the the wisdom that you're sharing of your own free will. I think it's, it's yeah. um, interesting to be in this space and to be online simultaneously. So I wonder if you could speak to uh, boundaries. Sure. I had, uh, I had assumed that it would be a lot more challenging than it's been. I mean, there are parts of it that definitely are like, oh, wow, okay, let me name these boundaries again. And how do I do it just not in a non-reactive, highly emotional way, but how how can I help de-escalate these situations? But I generally don't get people direct messaging me, uh, sharing personal stories. I try to make that pretty clear that I don't respond to direct messages. And if I see that that's starting to happen, I just repost my disclaimers. And it honestly comes from a place of, well, first off, I have licensing laws. I cannot be off practicing psychology outside of the state of Tennessee. Most people who follow me do not live in the state of Tennessee. So if there's a legal and ethical component, it's also appreciating that you are a complex person your life is very complex and nuanced. I cannot in any way appreciate all of the complexity in a paragraph long direct message. I'm bound to get it wrong. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, when people feel compelled to reach out to me, the, the feedback I tend to give them is this is important And you should seek the counsel of the wisest person in your life that you know, you know, for that particular situation. So if somebody has a career concern, okay, look around in your life and reach out and and ask for help. Um, I think people are scared to ask for help and they find that people are generally pretty receptive to doing that. It's just about asking. I think the healthiest of us don't want to impose and, and, take over for other people so they don't tend to offer unsolicited advice, right? So in terms of direct messages, I I thankfully haven't had that, but I think it's, I've been very consistent about boundaries and I'm very careful about the questions that I ask in my captions, because I don't think it's fair to ask questions that elicit a really personal response from people. Mm -hmm. If I'm not going to be able to reciprocate with any kind, like it just is out there in the world, this vulnerable share, and it's just there. 
I don't feel good about setting people up for that. Now I do love it when I see other people who follow me respond back to these people who do leave these comments. I'm like, oh, this is a nice community feel. I love this. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your boundaries question. Besides, I just try to name them pretty transparently. If this is what this account is, this is what it isn't. And I never respond to direct messages. Yeah. I just don't. Because then I'm picking favorites. I feel like I would be picking favorites there. And that's not okay. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate what you said too about there's no way to possibly know the full Mm-hmm. scale of somebody's experience. I know when I meet with clients, it's for a full hour and there's a lot of depth and yeah. expansion that goes into that. I'm like, this is far more than just a paragraph if somebody were to, to transcribe it. Exactly. Like you are able to help them unpack the layers of their experience. Maybe I am getting old, but I just don't see myself unpacking the layers of somebody's experience via text. I want to be able to see them for them to be able to see me, right? There's just so much in that experience of actually just sharing a space with them. Yes. Um, And I know there's a lot of people listening right now that have never received like traditional therapy from Mm -hmm. a therapist. And I know that you do um, a general psychology. So you see people who are grieving, but you see people for other issues as well. And I wonder if somebody who's grieving is like shopping for a therapist, um, what should they know going in? Uh, yeah, I. Uh, it depends on where the therapist is located. Like I am in a solo private practice, so I am my own secretary. <laughs> I answer my calls. I do my scheduling, right? So if you call me and I have an opening and you leave a voicemail, we'll talk on the phone and I would give you a chance to ask me questions. And I would ask that you you know, what's, what are you hoping to work on? Because I, you cannot be good at everything. And I don't want people to come and see me and be vulnerable and sharing their experience, telling their story and saying, Oh shoot, I don't do couples therapy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) That is so unfair if I know it from the outset. Right. And so I would just say, if you were going to see a therapist to try to talk to them on the phone and say, this is what I'm coming in for how would you help somebody like me who is working through these issues? And just listen to what they have to say. Pay attention to your feelings about that as they're talking. Does it fit for you or not? Um, The empirical literature on psychotherapy doesn't suggest that one treatment modality is better than another, like theoretical orientation. So what I find is some people are really cognitive. They really think logically and they then may like a cognitive behavioral approach because it's how their mind works. And other people like me who are not very analytical, data focused. I'm going back to that math degree again. (laughs) What was I I thinking? Uh, there's another, you know, I'm psychodynamic and feminist therapist. And so I look at big abstract, let's look at themes in your life and conflicts overall that can span across years. And that is something that really just fits for my personality and the way that I look at life. Right. So I would just ask them about their style. You'll get a sense as you're talking to them about fit. If somebody's at an agency, they may not directly say, 
oh, you can talk to the therapist. But typically, if you just ask and say, could I do like a little short 15-minute free consultation, most people will offer that if you ask. Yes. And I've heard a lot of grieving people compare um, shopping for a therapist to dating because <laughs> you have sure. to get some kind of um, resonant fit or have some something in common in terms of vocabulary or, um, yeah, practice. Are you more cognitive or are you more abstract? Kind of where, how do you mm-hmm. tell stories? What do you believe to be true? Um, and even beliefs wise, what do you practice? Is it feminist therapy? Is it uh, mm-hmm. therapy for BIPOC? Is it um, mm-hmm. uh, therapy for men as well? Yeah. Or EMDR or, mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many different approaches, but you can ask them. I, I mainly, I, I appreciate when people ask me that question, or sometimes I just assume the question might be in there and I try to answer that question. So this is typically what our work would look like. Um, it just, that seem like that's a good fit for you. Yeah. What it oftentimes comes back to is how well do you feel like you connect with your therapist and you can figure these things out. I, I would say there are people that can tell on a phone call with me of like, Oh yeah, uh, this isn't the, this isn't a style that's going to work for me. And then I try to help them get with a therapist that is closer lined up with the way they approach the world or, or what they are hoping to get from therapy. Um, but typically you can know after, I always say, give it a few sessions because you are really nervous when you first are sitting down and that first telling your story, uh, sessions that can feel quite different than the therapy relationship overall. It's sort of like when you talk about dating a first date with somebody, you both might be a little bit nervous and a few dates in you, you've got the sense of the conversation and the flow and and how connected you are and like, okay, is this seeming like this is going to work over the long term or not? You can make a more informed decision. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I really agree with that because I've had fantastic therapy experiences and I've had really stinky ones. (laughs) as well, especially when it pertains to grief and when it does not pertain to grief. And so it's just uh-huh. fascinating to um, to recognize that therapists are as different as we are. And so one yeah. therapist does not speak for them all. And there are some therapists who are really burnt out. And there are some therapists who haven't done all of their own personal work. And they have some sensitive spots that part of their ways of coping and therapy is to try to avoid topics and that can hold clients back. A somewhat controversial post that I I haven't posted in a while because I honestly I don't really want to deal with the comments (laughs) that are going to come is um, it's okay to break up with your therapist and generally I will have therapy therapist accounts a couple of them say don't say that that makes us look bad therapists are good. Uh, thankfully, most therapists will say, uh-uh, not all therapists are a good fit. Not all therapists are great at every part of the job, right? Like we're like anyone else. We're human. So someday you'll see me repost that. But I'll look forward to that because I think, um, I think that's very true. We can find grievers who are listening to the show who've had horror stories with therapists mm-hmm. of grief, of therapists who believe there's a timeline for it and they should be uh, over it by now or that um, 
trying to get to the roots of a suicide or a murder or something intensely traumatic in a traumatized, a re-traumatizing way. Um, but then conversely, there are people who've been with their therapist for, for years and years or had breakthroughs or progressions that they never could have gotten to on their own. But no, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that, especially because many of the practitioners I've talked to being in this space uh, say, yeah, uh, therapists don't spend a lot of time specifically on grief. And mm-hmm. so to be a grieving person and show up to therapy, I don't know what was true for you necessarily, but maybe a week, two or three modules on grief and loss. Um, ah. And it's part of the, it's part of the package, but it's definitely not the whole experience of, of training unless you're specialized. Yeah. In terms of book work, I don't know that we had, you know, a lot of your experience would come with the intensive supervision that you receive as a student, mm-hmm. which then means your experience is dependent on what clients are placed on your caseload, right? And then you're diving in and doing intensive work behind the scenes to educate yourself so that your client is educating you and meeting with supervisor and watching tapes and getting feedback on how you're doing. Like, oh, it seems like you're avoiding this difficult thing for this client. Do you see how you're like moving away? Because what was happening for you there? I went to a really psychodynamic program. So we talked a lot about your own reactions as a therapist and working through those blocks so that you could more authentically connect with your client. Um, Yeah, I mean, you're not going to take a class on grief necessarily. Maybe if your program has a professor who studies grief, then you would have potentially special topics on it. Yes, but this practice of therapizing the therapist to root out those, oh, see where you stopped there or redirected the conversation. It's very meta. That makes me laugh. (laughs) As you are offering therapy, you are receiving therapy yourself. Yeah, and it's not therapy, but it's very very personal Mm -hmm. because you are your own best tool, your ability to be authentic and present and compassionate while also being an observer, that's going to be the tool that helps people move forward, which means you, you have to identify your blocks. You have to identify your fears and deal with them. And so this is where a lot of supervisors will say, let's have you go see your own therapist. So you can not talk about the client, but talk about these reactions and where they're coming from in your own past. Yes. Some of my favorite clients to meet with are therapists because I realize that this is such, I just like meeting with people who are, I guess, kind of a little bit like me, but also realizing, wow, if we help them, then they are better at helping their clients, right? And there's just this ripple that brings a lot of meaning. Yes. I'm a person who, (laughs) uh, I create utopian fantasies in my head and in my perfect (laughs) world, everybody gets assigned a therapist at the age of five (laughs) and you can, you can swap them out. You can dump your therapist, you can get a new one, but, and you can keep trying them on for the rest of your life. But, um, this idea of companionship via a neutral third party has always spoken to me in some way. And uh, in my world, it, it kind of sucks that it took me to getting to grief to get there because I didn't have a therapist before I started grieving. And then yeah. I did, and then I really needed one. And I was like, holy cow, 
Um, so I was new to the therapy experience, but then I was also mm-hmm. grieving and I almost wish I had done the therapy experience first and then entered into it. Um, yeah. With the additional weight of grief. And so in, in my utopian society, everybody has a therapist or yeah, some no. kind of um, observer or story editor that comes in and is like, what, what are we doing up there? And yeah. in here in our heart space as well. And how can we tailor it um, so that you feel more free or more light or more confident setting boundaries or kind of whatever goals you have yeah. for yourself? When people tell me they want a neutral third party, I, I will say, you know, full disclosure, I am not neutral. Right. <laughs> I, I am on your side. <laughs> like I'm biased. I'm biased toward you. Like, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to ignore issues in the spirit of quote, taking their side. I'm on their side. I'm their ally. I'm with them. I want their life to be better. And that might mean I have to give them some really hard feedback. But I, am I neutral? I would say no, because I'm on their side. And in being in their side, it's uh, I might be having to say, um, let's talk about ways that you help to create these problems in your life in the ways you need to change you to have these relationships be different. Yeah. I love that yeah. correction. Thank you. Yeah. The myth of neutrality. <laughs> yeah, it's a myth. And I think it's a myth that psychology started. It's, <sighs> Say more you know, on that. Well, Freud, right? Yeah. Was Freud, was he really neutral or was he having reactions? I mean, he was even talking about you have reactions. That's why you go to analysis. Is you go to analysis to work out all of these reactions so that you can be a neutral, detached observer. But I think part of how he was able to maintain that detachment is they didn't look each other in the eye. He stared at a sheet of paper and took notes and just listened. And the other person's laying on the couch, right? We've all Mm -hmm. seen that image. And they're looking not at the analyst, right? There's this detachment. Thankfully, we've, I mean... I've not experienced psychoanalysis myself. I know that there are psychoanalysts in the world today, and I suspect that there are things about it that look radically different in a positive way in terms of people being able to feel really connected. But psychotherapy, like what I do, it's very human connection based. It's exactly the word that popped into my brain Mm -hmm. is there's humanity when you can look somebody in the eyeballs or see their body language Mm or... um, yeah. Even uh, you're speaking about intuition earlier, but like feel their energy. Um, mm-hmm. Ah, the room just got colder. Mm-hmm. Something's happening here. Yes. Yeah, yeah for sure. It's uh, weird in the age of telehealth, right? I haven't seen a client in person since the beginning of March. Yes. And so it's different to find this human connection through a screen. And yet we are surprisingly adaptive and we as humans are finding a way. It's just strange and there's stress because it's different. And um, there is something that is lost when you're not in the room. But there's weird things that are also gained too, where you can see people being able to be comfortable in their own home Mm -hmm. as they're sharing these vulnerable things or all of their pets who are showing up for therapy as these really nice emotional support animals, right? (laughs) Oh, this is so beautiful of a thing that's getting to happen here. And it'll be really great when we can meet in person again. Yes. I um, primarily meet with clients 
over Skype, Zoom, mm-hmm. many internationally. So I haven't even set foot on the soil where they live. Um, <laughs> but to see, you know, where their eyes look when they're talking about the past or where they place their hands when they feel they're in pain mm-hmm. or um, one of them introduced me to her chickens uh, oh. the other day. And I was like, this is amazing. This is so great. This would have never happened if we'd met in person. Um, and there's, yeah, it's, it's a different kind of attention that you pay. Even right now, you and I are looking each other in the eye, but we're, we're over zoom. Um, mm-hmm. It's a different kind of attention that you pay virtually, but there's still connection there. It is not devoid of humanity. It's just a different kind of humanity, I think. Yeah. And I can uh, also see that there are some people where the emotional intensity of sitting in the room with somebody and sharing really vulnerable parts of yourself, that it feels too intense Mm -hmm. and they get overwhelmed by that intensity. And by being at home and having the filter and layer of the screen, it helps them be seen more like they they're they feel a little more safety in being seen because there's also a little more distance mm-hmm. and that has been a really nice unexpected positive of this shift yeah shift in the world always mm-hmm. adapting mm-hmm. i wonder um if you could speak to like what the hardest part of being a therapist is but maybe um the opposite the thing that comes to you with the most ease Hmm. You're really making me think on this stuff. (laughs) I think early on, one of the hardest things for me was really trying to attend to all of my reactions. And there's just so much data, you know, emotional data that you're taking in all the time. You're paying attention to your reactions. You're trying to pay attention to what's coming up for them. You're, You're trying to connect this to other themes in their life while also managing time. And there's a lot of balls in the air while also saying, Oh, but be present with them. Don't (laughs) be in your head. And that, that was very hard initially. I I think honestly, my, my biggest struggle now is just getting my paperwork done. I just hate (laughs) the menial half of the job. Um, But I, Uh, Yeah, I I think that the easiest part for me is um, maybe maybe for me as a a therapist compared to other therapists, I think a strength that I bring is I say that I'm pretty autonomy granting. I really have spent a lot of time working through my beliefs about people's competence and abilities to make their own decisions for themselves and how that is just a core value of mine that I can join with them without needing to take over and save them, that I can really trust that they know what's best for their own life and making those, letting them make those decisions for themselves. And it's beautiful to see it, right? It's beautiful to see it when it happens. One of the coolest things when it happens, I'm smiling because um, in grief, a lot of times the first book I wrote is called Permission to Grieve. And we so often look for permission in things outside of ourselves. I'm like, mm-hmm. what if what if we just granted ourselves permission to feel what we're feeling or to change our identities or to take some sort of concrete action out in the world? Um, it really, 
I think we forget our power mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, yeah, we uh, have had many different messages over the course of our life telling us to not trust our intuitive voice, to look to somebody else. And it, the work is saying, I get to make the ultimate decision about how I live my life. Sure, we may want to take in feedback and consult other people, see what their experience is, but, but ultimately, I am the person who is the best knower of how I should live my life. Yeah. And I'm the one who has to live it <laughs> at the end yeah. of the day. <laughs> and, and I've said that phrase, a version of that phrase many times to clients of like, look, I don't live with the consequences of these choices, good or bad. So I don't think that I should be able to make the call your exceptions would be safety issues, right? If somebody Mm -hmm. is coming to you because they are feeling unsafe with themselves and then you say, uh, you know, what I say in them in those situations is that is the part of you that knows that you want to live and we need to listen to that side of you because that side of you will guide you forward. And I know there's this other strong voice that is telling you something different Let's let's focus on the, the side that is telling you to talk to people about how you feel unsafe. That's the side I'm joining with. And, and there is something that really resonates. And then I try to get that side of them to make the decisions, but also knowing part of why somebody comes to you as a therapist is to help you stay safe. And so that might be me coming in and making the call, right? Mm-hmm. And even the phrase you just said, um, my part as a therapist is to help you stay safe. Mm-hmm. And that is safe in the world, safe with others, but ultimately safe with yourself. Mm-hmm. And one of my very favorite posts that you posted, actually I have it bookmarked for days that I'm really sad. Um, oh, but yeah. uh, uh, be the kind of person that you can trust. Mm-hmm. We break our own trust so many times during the course of the day. And to to trust ourselves is to literally hand fork our hearts over into our own hands and say, do you got this? And then to respond, yeah, I got this. Yeah. People have experienced me as a pretty non-committal person. I don't make promises very easily and they'll say, and they'll joke. And I've had therapist friends be like, geez, don't, don't try to pin Jen down and hang out on Saturday. <laughs> They're like, she'll always come. But it really, it comes down to, I am somebody who I keep my promises to myself because I want to be a trustworthy person to myself. I want to, because to me, I'm thinking too selfishly, if I can't trust myself, then how am I trusting anybody else? Mm -hmm. If I break my own promises constantly, why should I expect anything different from the rest of the world? Yeah. Yeah. So I am careful about the promises that I make. Yeah. Like I was glad when I had messaged you, you had messaged me in March, your listeners don't know this, but you had messaged me in March as the world was falling apart. And I said, the world is falling apart. I am too busy. Can you reach back to me? And I thought, I hope that you just take that at my word that I would say yes. I couldn't say yes then, but I would say yes. And I was glad you reached back because I knew it was a yes. It was just not in March. Yes. And also respecting you enough to say, but that doesn't commit you to then 
wanting to record this later, right? Right. But also my promises. And yet here we are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In July when the world is still, wow, it's a lot, but uh, we have had a little more time to acclimate to it. Yes. Um, As we're wrapping up, if you could deliver one message to people who are listening right now, what would that be? Hmm. Yeah, well, so I'm putting together this e-course and it's about improving your relationship with yourself. And a theme that, that came up for me is I think about people's inner voice and oftentimes we have internalized a critical inner voice and maybe we can tie this back to a particular person in our life or, or maybe not. But uh, one of the bits of feedback that I had put in the course was think about who, if you could pick who your inner voice would be, who would it be? Maybe it's, I've had people will say, I just always try to think, what would Jen say? You know, I'm their therapist and like, they know me well enough to say, okay, what would Jen say here? What would she be saying to me? And I think there's so much value in saying, all right, I got to shift this voice. And if I had a little say here and influence, who would I pick? Whose voice needs to be guiding me through my life? I love that. Um, and maybe s- it's Shelby. <laughs> well, I was thinking for, for so many people that listen to the show, they're like, when I when I'm grieving and I don't know what to do, or I feel like I'm beating mm-hmm. myself up, I call in your voice. And mm-hmm. conversely, I told my grief growers this on a, a Patreon call about two weeks ago, that whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed or like I can't put out a podcast on time, quote unquote, or um, produce something consistently, goes back to productivity again, I call in the voices of my community uh-huh. of grief growers being like, go rest, we'll wait for you. You know, we, yeah. you got this, take it easy. We'll see you on Saturday or like whenever another deadline can be or whenever you can push it back. Um, and so in some way we are all offering each other some kind of grace. It's really yeah. lovely. And really these are the thoughts that we are generating ourselves. I think that we are allowing ourselves to access a more compassionate understanding side yeah. Right. Cause they aren't literally, unless they've literally said the words, right. You're right. imagining. Oh yeah. Right? Oh, a thousand percent. Grape grows. I'm putting words in your mouth, <laughs> in my brain, <laughs> putting words in my mouth, in your brain. Um, yes. But, so yeah. that would be my advice to them mainly because that's on my mind because I've been thinking about that recently and I've not written a post about it, but it is, uh, a really powerful experience that many of us have stumbled onto, but maybe have forgotten about, or, or maybe have never stumbled onto yet. And it's such a useful tool. It's useful for you. It's useful for me. I have my guides of my, my people. And I don't think that they would necessarily even guess that they would be the person that I would pick, but they're, they're my people. They're my inner cheerleader voices, right? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and grief growers, if you're listening, your loved one, is on the table. Oprah's on the table. My Angelou's on the table. Rob Bell's yeah. on the table. Cheryl Strayed's on the table. <laughs> Dr. Jen Hardy is on the table. <laughs> who, who are the voices in your head? Who is the crowd that's, that's cheering you on? Um, Jen, I would love if you could let people know where they can find your work on Instagram and if they live in Tennessee as well, how they can work with you and about your course as well. Yeah. So um, on Instagram, I'm Dr. Jen Hardy. Jen with two M's. And I also have a website that's 
www.drjenhardy.com. And so I've compiled resources there, like this podcast. I'll have a link on my website. Uh, but other podcasts I've been on, I, I release a free quarterly newsletter and you can get archived issues there. Um, in terms of working with me um, as a client, I am in part-time practice. I try to serve my rural area because we don't have enough therapists. And honestly, with COVID, I'm trying to balance work-life issues. So I've, I've not taken in new clients and I probably won't take in new clients anticipating what this school year is going to look like and what that'll mean with everything. Um, in terms of the e-course that I'm putting together, it's, it's going to be called MEND. It's not released yet, but hopefully it'll release sometime in mid to late July. I don't know when this course, this uh, episode will air, but it'll be all about um, how to improve your relationship with yourself. So we'll look at early messages, attachment, social and cultural messages that have influenced the way you view yourself. We'll look at your core values, self-care, relationship boundaries, communication. It's kind of a lot of what my work would look like if you were working with me one-on-one, but in a self-paced course. That's really beautiful. I am too. I saw you had announced it and I was like, oh. (laughs) Yeah, it's my first course. Wow, they are time consuming. I knew they would be, but it's like whatever time you think it's going to take, double it. That was always the rule. Triple it, yes. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it's triple it. Wow, this is taking some time, but I'm really proud of it. I really love how it's coming together and it's I'm excited for for it to be out in the world. I am as well because I I saw you post about it and I was like, "Oh, that's needed." Like those are the words that came up in my spaces that is needed. Yeah, and there's some other great therapists on Instagram who have courses, and so I would try to think, "Okay, what is a course topic that hasn't already been covered?" Because there's so much need for this information and let's not be redundant. Let's just try Mm -hmm. to make sure that we've covered everything before we start going back through and um, creating new, new programs for similar topics. Yeah. I love it. Well, grape growers look for mend uh, the course in late July, 2020. And Jen, thank you so much for joining us on coming back today. Thank you for reaching out. This has been great. You are lovely. so that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Dr. Jen Hardy for coming on to talk about what it's like to be a therapist in the digital age of Instagram and in the midst of COVID-19. Dr. Jen came back by allowing herself to be curious about herself and others and by changing the critical voice in her head for a collection of kinder, softer voices. You can find Dr. Jen's Instagram page and her new course called MEND at drjenhardy.com. And that's Dr. D-R and Jen with two N's. And of course, grief growers, you can find that link in the show notes. If you'd like to get online grief support for just $3 a month, pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Shelby Frasithia. You'll instantly unlock access to weekly grief guidance prompts and monthly live calls with me. Our next live grief support call is happening Monday, July 27th at 7 p.m. Central Time. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back. Because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein who composed our theme music. 
You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. Thank you.